Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches this is the Roy Green Show podcast. I understand that uh, France has put a lot of pressure on Canada to have a military peacekeeping mission in Mali in Africa. And tomorrow we'll have the official announcement from Ottawa about Canada's participation. And uh, speaking with us about this is one of the world's experts on Mali and on peacekeeping in uh, Francophone Africa, Dr. Bruno Charbonneau, the director of the Centre Franco Pay in conflict resolution and peace missions at the Cher Raoul Dandurand University of Quebec in Montreal. Uh, Dr. Charbonneau, thank you very much for the time. My pleasure. What is the uh, reality currently on the ground in Mali, and how badly out of control is the situation there? Well, I wouldn't say it's out of control, but it's definitely not going better. The peace process uh, uh, has been pretty much on the ice uh, since last summer. Uh, in terms of the security situation, uh, the center is uh, pretty pro- problematic. In the center region of Mali is where things are getting worse right now. Uh, in the north, uh, you can see that the government has not been able to go back there. So we have a situation of armed groups that... Uh, I guess, deal on daily basis uh, between each other uh, and overall are being monitored by UN and French troops over there. And in the south, we have a government that's uh, focused right now on the upcoming uh, presidential election uh, this coming summer in uh, July, end of July. And who's fighting whom? Well, that's a very good question. (laughs) Um, And that's where it gets really complicated, actually. You do have uh, armed groups uh, under two coalitions, uh, uh, the CMA, a coordination of Azawad groups that uh, uh, technically wanted um, an independent country back in 2012. They have changed uh, their, I guess, objective right now. And another called Platform, which is close to government. And these are two coalitions that signed the peace process in 2015, along with the government in Bamako. So you have that sort of uh, three-way dynamic, and over that, overlapping that, uh, I guess, um, embedded uh, or with that is uh, all these groups, jihadist extremists, uh, that uh, collaborate with some of the armed groups, uh, work within the region, have objectives that uh, vary a lot depending on the group, uh, but you have this sort of very mixed and uh, complicated dynamic of various groups that uh, uh, change alliances, change objectives, move uh, quite a lot across the region. And so it makes for somewhat of a messy situation, especially if you think in terms of trying to uh, solve the conflict. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be looking at people who are wearing a clearly identifiable uniform. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. What's going to be expected of Canada's peacekeepers, and is the population of Mali likely to be accepting or hostile. The, the French have been there for 
a few years now. What what are they going to encounter? Well, it's hard to say right now, but um, you know g- g- what we know so far is that Canada will provide helicopters, so mobility. Um, the UN mission lacks mobility, especially in the north, and they will provide Canadian government as they will provide medical support for the mission, that sort of thing. So, so I suspect it will be welcomed by both government and local population. Uh, the problem with the UN mission overall is that it is sometimes um, seen or perceived or associated with the French counter-terrorist mission. And so depending on what region you're in and where the, the Canadian troops are being deployed, it seems like it will be in Gao, uh, but we're not sure right now. Uh, it uh, it will affect that per local perception. But I suspect that it, if it's only medical support and uh, helicopter support, um, it will probably be fairly well accepted. How many other countries are involved? How many other countries' militaries are there? Oh, dozens. Uh, <laughs> a lot, actually. Um, not sure the exact number, but I'd say it's over 20. Uh, the big contributors are the kind of regional contributors from neighboring countries, Niger, Burkina Faso, Chad in particular. Other big contributors are Bangladesh uh, and the European uh, Germany has about a thousand troops. The Dutch used to have almost a thousand troops, but they're down to about 250 or 300 troops right now. Uh, so you have a large variety of uh, contributors within MINUSMA. Is is Mali where there have been reports uh, a great concern about sexual assaults and rapes of of, uh, of of local women by some peacekeepers, African peacekeepers? Is that where they was it Mali? Uh, no, it was basically Central Africa. Okay. Uh, this okay. was Central African Republic. Uh, there, there was a case or two in Mali, but nothing, as far as I can tell, that was uh, widespread and uh, problematic, so isolated cases. No, the big uh, problem was in the Central African Republic. What do the people of Mali need most, f- facing what you've explained to us mm-hmm. they're facing every day? Well, they need a lot of things, um, depending on the region again. Uh, the, the one thing that they all probably need is a, a government that's actually probably a bit more proactive in terms of rebuilding its authority, rebuilding the state, rebuilding basic services, um, rebuilding or reforming uh, its uh, police and military forces. Um, and that's probably the big thing. How how does the state both rebuild its authority and its capacity to govern, but also its uh, relationship with that community? Because right now, even though uh, a lot of the focus of the international intervention is on rebuilding that state capacity, uh, especially if you go in the center in the north of the country, the, the legitimacy of that state authority is uh, called into question and so you have to this long-term process of rebuilding that legitimacy and that relationship with uh, civil society. Dr. Charbonneau, what's the, the history of uh, United Nations missions to Francophone Africa? Well, it's a long history, for sure. Uh, but one thing I would say that makes it this thing different from other places is the role of France. Um, historically speaking, before the 1990s, uh, conflicts in French Africa, Francophone Africa, was dealt with or was being managed by uh, French, the French government, the French army. Uh, in the mid-1990s, that changed. After the Cold War, the, that changed. But 
there's always a French involvement, and there's so there's always that sort of intervention. Actually, all UN missions in Francophone Africa were preceded by a French military intervention that the UN then followed. So if you look at Mali right now, it was the same thing in Cote d'Ivoire in the early uh, uh, 2000s, same thing in Central Africa, for instance. Um, you always have a French presence, and that means that there's a historical I guess context that needs to be taken into account where uh, foreign forces, foreign troops, uh, foreign intervention is always interpreted or partly and largely interpreted through that prison, that, that perception that the uh, international intervention is partly because of the French and for French interests and that sort of thing. So, so there's always that sort of specific post-colonial dynamic between the ex-colonies and, uh, and France that needs to be taken into account. Dr. Charbonneau, much appreciate the time. Thank you so very much. My pleasure. Have a good day. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. There's a lot been said, a lot been written about uh, the federal NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, and particularly in the last week or so, as uh, it's been reported that Mr. Singh attended um, gatherings where Sikh independence in India was uh, discussed, where violence was also part of the conversation. And uh, and he said, uh, if you go to globalnews.ca, the story yesterday that Mr. Singh said he believes Canada, the federal government of Canada, should declare violence against Sikhs in India in the 1980s as genocide. A lot of questions about uh, what Mr. Singh really uh, has to say. And I was reading a a, uh, column by Margaret Wendy in the Globe and Mail. She writes, in part, all of this should be deeply troubling. And and really, let me go back a little bit. What Mr. Singh didn't say when he talked to the Globe and Mail about terrible persecution of the Sikhs and how that inspired him to stand up for human rights, what he didn't say is that the violence cuts both ways. Also in the 1980s, violent Sikh fundamentalists in Punjab sought to form an independent theocratic state called Khalistan. As Canadian writer Gaurav Singhmar wrote, or notes, that fundamentalist movement, quote, was largely an export from radical Sikh populations in the UK and Canada. It was Sikh militants who blew up the Air India Flight 182, killing 329 people, a fact that Mr. Singh has been extremely reluctant to acknowledge until his Globe opinion piece. All of this should be deeply troubling, writes Margaret Wente, not just to the party Mr. Singh now leads, but also to the rest of us. A man who wants to be prime minister is up to his neck in ethno-nationalist politics of another country and another time and place. He's deeply sympathetic to the more militant wing of his own ethnic community. He's heavily indebted, some say overly indebted, to the Sikh ethnic vote for his job. One reason he won the leadership was that he managed to sign up more than 10,000 B.C. Sikhs as new party members. So yesterday, when uh, Andrea Horvath was a guest on this program, the Ontario leader of the New Democratic Party, the provincial wing of the NDP, I asked her about Mr. Singh and uh, whether she was aware of his uh, attendance in 2015 when he was the deputy leader of the NDP. That was 2015 to 2017. Whether she was aware of his activities and here's what she said. Uh, well, in fact, Jagmeet has been uh, speaking to crowds 
on issues of, uh, of genocide and of human rights violations and uh, all kinds of those kinds of topics for many, many years. I mean, it's one of his passions and not just uh, when it comes to the Sikh community. I mean, he's spoken out on the Tamil community, for example. He's spoken out on, uh, you know, on all kinds of other uh, human rights issues worldwide. And so I wasn't unaware uh, that that was one of his passions. I wasn't unaware that he had been invited by many, many different uh, organizations and, you know, plenaries and conferences uh, around the world, here across Canada and around the world. And so, I mean, the specifics of, of his remarks and all of that stuff, that was kind of not part of his work as an MPP. It was more his work as a, a social uh, activist and as a, a human rights activist on the international stage. There's Andrea Horvath from yesterday on this program. Joining me is Tom Quiggin. And uh, Tom is a court-certified Canadian expert on terrorism He's done intelligence work for the RCMP, the Canadian Armed Forces, the United Nations for the War Crimes Tribunals. He's a, he's a very, very extensive CV. And uh, we've talked to Tom about his most recent book, Submission, The Danger of Political Islam to Canada. And it's the Quiggin, at Quiggin Report, right, on, uh, on, on Twitter, Tom? Uh, yes, it is. We'll be launching the uh, at Quiggin Report as a podcast it'll be hosted by patreon and we're hoping to have it out on the 27th of march right all right so we're going to talk about an interesting um, i guess we call it sidebar but it's more than a sidebar but we'll we'll just for convenience sake name it that about what happened to the quicken report in one of the major social media organizations in a little bit what did you make of uh, of andrea horvath's description of jagmeet singh when he was the deputy leader of the ontario ndp and what do you make of the news that's been really percolating across this country about Mr. Singh and what he's had to say, and particularly when he was talking to Global News that uh, the federal government should declare what happened to Sikhs in India in the 1980s as genocide. Well, it's a bit startling, uh, to say the least, uh, Roy. First off, let me just say, as you mentioned earlier, I worked for the International War Crimes Tribunal, uh, where we dealt with war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide cases. I worked for citizenship and immigration for a number of years where I dealt with nothing but war crimes cases, which again involved genocide. And I served on the ground in Bosnia where like real genocides were actually occurring. And my opinion would be that his call to recognize the 1984 riots, the attacks and the killing as genocide is legal, legally unsustainable. It's morally questionable and it's politically, I think it's, uh, it's unsupportable to the point of being dangerous for both him and the NDP party. The only way you could justify a call for that is if you're a pro-violence, pro-separatist uh, Khalistani or somebody who supports them. Um, yeah, it's really bad. Now, it's worth noting for your viewers as well, uh, and you alluded to it, that the, the 1984 killings were bad. I mean, let's be clear, a lot of bad things happened there. Uh, the Indian government says maybe 2,000 people died. Other folks say 8,000 people died. But the Sikh separatist movement had actually built bunkers and observation points around the Golden Temple. When the Indian Army tried to clean them out, uh, they actually responded by murdering the Indian Prime Minister, Indira Gandhi. Uh, and it was in that ensuing violence that a lot of folks died. So was the violence bad? Yes. Did the Indian Army overreact at some points? Yeah, probably they did. Uh, but to call this genocide, utter nonsense. Tom, the point was made yesterday by a caller that uh, when it comes to politicians in this country, particularly 
politicians with a profile, your your focus should be Canada. Your focus should be the the national interest in this country. What re, what Canada requires, and it shouldn't be another country or bringing conflict from another country here. And it was made. The point was made about about political leaders, but I think it would extend beyond just political leaders. Would you agree with that? Yes. I mean, if you want to come to Canada, my idea is great. Come on in. I mean, that's how my grandparents got here. Uh, They come from a series of mixed backgrounds. And the reason they came to Canada uh, was particularly to get away from the foolishness of the old country. Um, So what we're seeing, however, and you're correct to point this out, is a number of politicians who are using entryism. In other words, they're joining political parties not to help that political party, not to help Canada, but to uh, advocate for their political cause overseas. And again, we should note for your viewers that the Khalistani cause in India is dead. It's finished. There's nobody in uh, India advocating seriously for a free Khalistan anymore. The only people around the world who are doing this are in Canada, the United Kingdom, and America. And just by way of notation as well, the two richest states in all of India are Delhi and uh, the Punjab. Uh, so it's not like the Sikhs are horrendously oppressed or something like that. They actually sit at the top of the economic uh, structure in India. And, and you know, again, the, this whole issue... Only fo- Sorry, go ahead. No, Ron. I was going to say, though, this controversy managed to also overshadow a significant part of Justin Trudeau's trip to India, which never should have taken place. And uh, unfortunately, it turned out to be embarrassing. But uh, Mr. Trudeau and his uh, one of his senior national security advisors, who shall remain nameless to most people, but they know who we are, who he is, um, suggesting that uh, um, what was his name Atwal? Help me out. Jaspal Atwal. Jaspal Atwal. Uh, yeah, yeah the, the, Singh Sani was the other guy. Yeah, and he, they said that uh, that Atwal had been brought into the Trudeau um, uh, entourage as a uh, sort of an underhanded move by maybe some Indian um, government organization or spy organization. Anyway, it sounded like 007. And then Jaspal Atwal, was it last week, he said, no, no, I've been going in and out of India with, uh, with visas for quite some time. So this, this whole issue climbed on top of Trudeau in, in India, which was his visit was so embarrassing he didn't need any more trouble. Yeah, what's really interesting is they invited Jaspal Atwal, and anybody who did like even a Google search on this guy would know he used to belong to a terrorist group, and he was convicted of attempted murder of a cabinet minister, yeah. as well as fraud, as well as trying to beat the head in of uh, Usel Jofani. Uh, and then the guy who was at the top of the list of journalists, and the guy's name is literally at the top of the list of journalists for whom PMO asked for visas to go to India, was Manbeet Singh Sani, who's well-known for his role in advocating that the Prime Minister of India is a terrorist, and there's multiple pictures of him floating around the Internet, holding up signs with his family in Toronto, saying the Prime Minister of India is a terrorist. Yet these are the folks that were on the inside of the meeting, or meetings, plural, uh, in India. So for the government of Canada, or for Prime Minister Trudeau, or for the PMO to say, A, it's the fault of India, well, that's absolute nonsense. You were the ones that invited them. And then to somehow infer that the, they didn't know anything about it just belies belief. You know, we spoke with a New Delhi journalist who told us that the Indian government didn't want Justin Trudeau in India. They didn't want him for a week. They knew he wasn't there to really work with India. He was there to to appeal to the uh, to the Indian, Indo-Canadian population in, in Canada. 
trying to score votes. And I said, uh, do you think that Mr. Trudeau's visit created a negative, uh, created more of a negative reality for the Indo-Canadian relationship? And he said, oh, absolutely. Yes, without doubt, uh, overall relationships have been damaged uh, between India and Canada. Partly, it should be noted, by the provincial Ontario legislature actually passed a motion to try and recognize the violence in India as a genocide against uh, the Sikhs. Uh, In fairness to the Ontario legislature, two-thirds of the MPPs didn't show up, but nonetheless, the motion passed. Uh, And then the visit by Trudeau, of course, was an utter disaster for any kind of uh, further relations. Um, It was noted ahead of time, of course, and you're correct in pointing it out, that the trip over there had nothing to do with Canada's business. Uh, Out of that entire eight-day trip, at the outset, there was only half a day literally half a day of official business. The rest of it was all unofficial. It was only once they started getting criticized that they jacked it up, and there was a day and a half's worth of official visits. So, yeah, that, the uh, the entire trip to India, I think, damaged Canada. It damages India to a certain degree, albeit less. And interesting enough, it damages citizens in Canada who are from India originally, because India now is going to start taking a lot harder look at anybody applying for a visa to visit India, and anybody who's got uh, a radical background or an extremist background, I think it's going to start having a lot harder time getting visas back to India. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Now back to Tom Quiggin on The Roy Green Show on uh, the Chorus Radio Network. Court-certified Canadian expert on terrorism, intelligence work for the RCMP, CAF, UN, the War Crimes Tribunals. I uh, read you the... um, I read you the uh, CV. His book is Submission, this most recent book, Submission, The Danger of Political Islam to Canada. So, Tom, as we end, as we break, you talk about Trudeau bringing, allowing ISIS terrorists back into Canada. And I mentioned uh, Jack Letts and his father, Tom Letts, uh, uh, John Letts, and said that he wouldn't, wasn't communicating with me anymore. Guess what happens during the bottom of the hour break? <laughs> you got a phone call from John Letts. I, I got an email. Ah. And, a, and a very polite, very, uh, oh, very polite, very positive email. Thank me for the way we treated him on the program, and uh, yeah, he's uh, and whatever the lawyers tell him to do, I guess. So he'll he'll he may be back. So I, it took a while. I mean, I didn't hear from him for a long time, so I just assumed that he'd uh, had fallen out of favor because I, I said the day after I spoke with him, when a listener asked me or a caller asked me. Do you think uh, his son had anything to do with ISIS? And I said, my gut tells me yes. And I thought that that maybe it upset Mr. Letts. Anyway, I did hear back from him. Now, on this issue of the ISIS terrorists being allowed back into Canada, at the same time, we have um, we have translators, interpreters, Afghan interpreters. We'll be talking to two of them in the next hour. One is in Canada. The other one is in Afghanistan. The one in Afghanistan is being hunted by the Taliban. They've been able to get a missive to him that if they catch up with him, they're going to kill him and behead him and kill his family. He, Because he worked with Canadian troops and, and other ISAF troops, and uh, he desperately wants to get into this country. We had the door cracked open a little bit by Jason Kenney for two years, and then they slammed the door shut. And uh, we've got all these people, and I'm getting emails from interpreters all over the place who, who are desperately afraid, who would love to come to Canada, and I'd say that they've proven their... They're bona fides about coming here. So, but but instead we have the uh, 
think I'll go to Syria and join ISIS types returning. Yeah, it's it's a problem, Roy, and it's not just a problem in Canada. It's a problem in the United Kingdom, United States as well, um, that we have interpreters who've worked for us uh, and other folks who work for us as well at the local level who have, like you said, proven their bona fides. They've helped us. They've done this at great risk to themselves, and now the Canadian government is turning on them and dumping them. The problem with this kind of thing is it also damages future missions. People on the ground aren't going to want to help us, if they think we're going to throw them under the bus once we're done with them. You know what, let me just try this. Uh, we don't have time to play the whole segment that I was going to play for you, the, the, the first part of the interview with John Letts. But I want to play a little bit of it, so if we can just start it off and have a listen to how that went. Mr. Letts, thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure, Roy. Thank you for having me on your program. Is your son a member of ISIS? Uh, absolutely not. Never been. Um, condemned him all the time. Uh, no, I, I, you know, people can say I'm just a father in denial or I'm naive or anything like that. But no, there's never been any evidence to show that. If there was, I'd love to know it, because if he really was a member of ISIS, I'd be the first to queue up and condemn him. Uh, no, uh, and, and nothing's been presented to show us to this. He's been um, against it from the beginning. And by the way, he only ended up in Raqqa because he was hurt in, in Iraq. He was living actually in Iraq, and his house was bombed, apparently. Now, you know, I, I say, uh, obviously, I'm not there, and, and really, Jack's got to speak for himself of what we know. He only went to Raqqa towards the end of his trip um, there, or his, uh, when he went there, and to, to be treated in a hospital. It's not that he kind of ended up in the capital of the caliphate because he was part of such a caliphate. Did so he not? I understand. I, I read that he, he wanted to go to the ISIS territory because he was of the view that they had, in fact, created a, a sort of a perfect Muslim state to live in. Do I understand that correctly? Uh, well, I mean, I think, first of all, when he went, um, when he left Oxford, I, uh, I, the caliphate hadn't been even declared, and not many people knew about ISIS. I mean, we're, we were kind of up on physical events, but I didn't really know what ISIS was very much. Uh, I think the concept of a caliphate... Um, as much as we might think that's a horrible idea, or many of us do. I mean, I'm not a very religious fellow myself, um, but uh, I think there were a lot of Muslims who thought that perhaps there was some genuinely Islamic state was being created. And according to Jack and many people, I think, who have very strong Islamic views, that if there is, according to the Quran, from what I understand, if there is a genuine Islamic state, um, well, Islamic society, that it's the duty of a, of a Muslim to live in it. Now, Jack has OCD. You've probably read that, too. Very intense child. When he gets into something, he's really into it. And he learned Arabic in six months, and he decided that this... I think his Islam had a lot to do with his OCD. I mean, we don't have time to go into that. But, um, I mean, I had no, we had no, obviously no idea he was going. He just went to learn Arabic in, in Kuwait. Uh, and only later did he phone and said, oh, yes, I, I'm in Syria, but I'm actually going to Iraq. Um, so he went, I think, to explore that idea. I mean, he's 18. He had finished high school. He was full of energy. He wanted to. He said it's a duty of a Muslim to help other Muslims. And given what was going on in Syria, all the bombing and Assad, uh, the oppression that was going on, he said, maybe I can do something. And that was his language skills. And he could work in a hospital, he could work in a school, he could do something. And, you know, I would like him to answer this question, Roy, to be quite honest. I mean, 
you know, we, we, well, we did what we could to, to help get him out because mm-hmm. that's really what happened in the last 18 months before he left Raqqa, but papers don't seem to report. I'm, it's really great to speak to someone directly like this because obviously we haven't been able to talk about it to anyone because of the gagging order that we're under. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. You sent him money. Your son asked for money. And it no, was, we tried to send him money. We tried to send him money. Why did the British government take you to court for funding a terrorist operation? Is that correct? Uh, uh, yes, that's taken a while at the Old Bailey um, in the dock uh, in September. Um, but we're also challenging the whole law in the Supreme Court on April 19th. Uh, basically, for about, uh, well, for a year, uh, let's say going to in 2015, this has been going on for such a long time, um, he was sending lots of messages to us saying, I've got to get out of here, please, Mom, please, Dad. You know, they, they're hunting down my friends because we're all standing against them. I mean, there was resistance activity inside Raqqa against ISIS. And all right, so there's a good part of the uh, first part of the interview with John Letts, the father of Jack Letts. And Jack Letts is imprisoned by the Kurds because he got away, he says, from ISIS. He's imprisoned by the Kurds, and he's asked Canada and Canadians, he's a dual citizen, Canadian and British, he's asked uh, Canada to take him in. Put him in prison, he said, doesn't matter. Do what you want with me. Just let me get out of here and get to Canada. And that's his plea, and he insists he was never a member of ISIS. His father says, as you heard, that he was in Raqqa for three years. He was in hiding. He tried to get away from ISIS. And uh, the, the interview was an hour, and there's a lot of information on it. It's it's uh, it's still on Twitter. I'm going to post it again, the whole thing. But uh, Tom Quiggin, as you listen to John Letts, clearly a father who loves his son, wants his son saved and wants his son's life saved, uh, but also says, if I, if I find out that, that he did what, what he's being accused of having done, then uh, then I'll call him out on that. So as you listen, you've heard the whole interview. Uh, what do you make of it? Um, well, first off, Roy, let me just say I've got, I guess, a fair amount of sympathy for John Letts. His son is in serious trouble. Uh, he's being held captive by some folks who suffered badly under ISIS, and he's afraid for his life, and well, he should be. Having said that, however, a good chunk of what he puts forth in the interview and other press statements is somewhat less than credible. In that piece you just uh, you, uh, re-rebroadcast there, he said, well, you know, my son wasn't in ISIS. He was in Iraq when he was hurt, and then he went to ISIS. Like, no, no, he was in ISIS-controlled Iraq. He also said he left before the caliphate was declared, which isn't entirely true. He may have left Oxford before the caliphate was declared, but he was in Kuwait, and then he went to ISIS three months after the caliphate had been declared. And that was at the time that ISIS was showing recruiting videos, which showed the mass beheading of soldiers. They were talking about mass rape of women. They showed the decapitation of James Foley. So anybody that went to ISIS at that time knew exactly what was going on in ISIS. It wasn't exactly a secret. He has... Really, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say the other really damning piece of uh, evidence against... Uh, Jack, the son, is that he gave an interview to Channel 4 News in the UK in 2016, two years after he got to ISIS, said he had no regrets about being there, he had no plans to return to the United Kingdom. He said that he wasn't currently fighting for ISIS, which one could strongly suggest means he had been previously fighting for ISIS, 
And then he went on a bit of a rant and said how he hated his parents because they're non-believers. He hopes that they die in their rage. Uh, and that he referred to with the rest of us as basically a bunch of dirty kafars and non-believers. So this idea that yeah. this sort of misguided youth going off to explore a caliphate um, doesn't line up with the actual evidence trail on the other side of the okay. on the other side of the sheet. Uh, Tom, I thank you for joining us today. We'll find out more. Mr. Letts is coming to Canada tomorrow. He'll prevail upon the government to allow Jack Letts into the country. When you think of uh, Bill C-6 and uh, Mr. Trudeau changing the legislation about not being able to strip a convicted dual citizen of his Canadian or her Canadian citizenship, there's really nothing uh, hard and concrete, from what I understand, to keep Jack Letts out of this country. He's a Canadian citizen. He hasn't been convicted of any criminal uh, or terrorist act. Under C-6, it wouldn't matter if he had been or not. He'd still be a Canadian citizen, and so he'd have rights to come here, wouldn't he? Unfortunately, my guess is at the end of the day that yeah. he might very well, very well wind up here. I mean, he's a Canadian legal citizen of convenience. He has no actual yeah, attachment yeah. to Canada. And the UK not educated here, but nonetheless, this is where we're at. Yeah, yeah. And the UK doesn't want him. So, thank you, Tom. It's always good speaking with you. Uh, the uh, book is "Submission: The Danger of Political Islam to Canada and a Warning to America." We'll talk again soon, Tom. Thanks for the time. Cheers. Thanks, Roy. All the best. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. They worked shoulder to shoulder with Canada's troops. They interpreted for Canadian troops during the 10 years of the Afghan campaign. They were on the front lines with Canadian soldiers, and when Canadian soldiers took fire, so did they. And some among their number died on the front lines. They are the Afghan interpreters. And only about a third of these interpreters have been allowed into this country, which was through a stringent program the Conservatives put in place in 2009, which ended in 2011. Now, I say only about a third have come into Canada. That was the statistic that I saw in 2011. I haven't been able to find anything more current than that. I do know, I do know, that interpreters are languishing in Afghanistan, very much afraid for their lives, because, because they worked with Canada's troops, they are now on the Taliban's hunt-and-kill list. This country benefited, and our soldiers benefited, from their presence. And I've seen letters of commendation for these interpreters from Canadian soldiers, from American soldiers. And what are we doing for them? Not a damn thing. The Harper government dropped the ball in 2011. The Trudeau government can't find the ball, or doesn't want to, because they're too enthusiastic about allowing others into the country, like the ISIS terrorists. But these interpreters... We need to help them. You need to help them. I need to help them. If the government's not listening, we'll make them listen. They like their jobs in Ottawa. They really do. And if people have earned their way into this country and earned the right to live here, it is the people who suited up every day with our troops and went out with them every day 
and were under fire every day. And they were particularly interesting targets. They had they had they had they had bullseyes on their backs for insurgent snipers. They wanted to take out the interpreters, but they went every day. Yeah, they got paid. But you can't pay anybody enough for that kind of service. And we owe them. Mr. Trudeau doesn't seem to see it that way, and Mr. Harper didn't see it that way, and Jason Kenney didn't see it that way after 2011. So uh, a few weeks ago, we talked to Alex in Afghanistan. He's back with us. He's one of the interpreters. Alex, how are you? Hey, how's it going, Joe? It's great to hear from you again. Yeah, and I'm fine. Thank I'm, you very much. I'm fine. How are you doing? Uh, to be honest with you, just to share with you, and uh, I just survived from a horrible situation. I mean, there was a suicide attack today where I live, and I just survived. I was just meter, I mean, meters away from that attack, and I saw bodies on the, I mean, floor inside the classroom, and also uh, inside the tuition center. That, I wanted to take photos, but the police officers, they were just pushing me away like, you're not allowed to take photos. Uh, that, that, that was that just, was that, uh, that was today, I mean, Alex. Morning. I'm sorry. That was today. Yes, that was today. Yes. That's horrific. I mean, and this is something that the the people of Afghanistan face every day. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, usual. It happens. Yeah. My uh, my other guest is James, and he's in Alberta. And James is one of the fortunate interpreters who made it to this country. Joe Warmington of the Toronto Sun did absolutely incredible work, yeoman's work, to get James into the country. And the former immigration minister, John McCallum, liberal immigration minister, give credit words to you, uh, saw the wisdom in bringing uh, James into Canada. James, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, sir. How are you? Doing great. How do you like Canada? Oh, it's an amazing country, man. I love it. And how have you been treated? When people know what you did for Canadians, when people know that you were an interpreter, how are you being treated? Oh, for for the last uh, for the previous years when I was in Afghanistan. Yeah, how do Canadians treat you? Oh, the Canadians treat me like <laughs> I don't know how I can say that. That was that was pretty good. Do you want to go ahead and talk to your friend uh, Alex? Alex, uh, you you guys knew each other in Afghanistan. Yeah, sure. I was just wondering to yeah. to thank you guys for giving me opportunity to talk to uh, to Alex once again here. And then, yeah, that was a long time. We we worked together uh, on 2010 uh, with the Canadian Forces and Bob uh, Wilson, which is uh, which was that Bob Wilson was located in uh, Jerry District. Yeah, we met there on 2010. Alex, I'm so happy and I'm so excited, man. Yeah, me too, brother. I'm happy that you could make it all the way to Canada and uh, yourself with your family. And and I appreciate those people who helped you. And I'm really oh. happy that you're home. Oh, thanks, man. I'm so happy that you're still alive, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm dealing with it. I'm, somehow I'm just trying to survive. Uh, you know what? There's a lot of nice people in this country, and this country is a nice country, man. I hope that somebody can hear us from uh, immigration, and then they can help us or 
they helped me and hopefully they can help other interpreters too that who who's still back in Afghanistan. I know what they are doing there, so their lives is at risk. So hopefully hopefully as soon as they can hear us they can do something for you and for others. I appreciate it. And I know what Canadians uh are going to do. I mean what they will do for us. I count on them. And there is no need that I name every one of them. I already mentioned them on Twitter. Like, I count on these people. And they're the ones they can push the government and help us out. Yeah, Alex, you never, you never know I'm how, how, how happy I am. I even can't talk, man. Like, I'm, like, like surprised to talking to you, man. It was a long time that we worked together, man. And I was just wondering about you guys that, yeah, that's nice to hear from you. And I'm so happy for that. Me too, brother. Me too. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm even happier than you because uh, you're at home and you're safe. And I see you're happy. I, I heard like the way you're uh, talking. I mean, the, the joy that you had. I mean, the smile. And I'm happy, man. And I just uh, hope that we all get together once again in Canada and enjoy life together. I mean, this is a horrible situation in Afghanistan. Everybody's tracking about it. I mean, all media is full of uh, bad news about Afghanistan. So, so at the moment, bro, I just can't I didn't say have that. Yeah, yeah, I just can't say that. Don't be worried. There's yeah. a lot of nice people in this country, and and hopefully, pretty soon that they can help you out, that you can come out from from there, and then you will be safe too. Don't be worried. Yeah. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. From the Globe and Mail in 2011, two of every three Afghans who sought refuge in Canada after risking their lives working for the military in Kandahar have been turned away, Some, uh, including some who worked alongside Canadian soldiers during the bloodiest days of battle. The program was announced with much fanfare by Immigration Minister Jason Kenney in the fall of 2009 and brought Canada in line with other NATO countries which had already launched similar initiatives. It ends Monday. Applicants had to demonstrate they faced extraordinary risk. As a result of their work with Canada, few didn't. Working as an interpreter for NATO in southern Afghanistan was akin to having a Taliban's bullseye on your back. So, and this program was only from, for those who were with Canada's forces between 2007 and 2009, some of the bloodiest battles happened in 2006, so I guess that didn't count. What's wrong with these people? Uh, Alex, can you, um, can you share with everyone listening one particular moment, one particular day that you went out with Canadian troops when it got really nasty? Can you, can you do that? Yes, of course, Roy, and uh, thank you very much for this show again. Yes, sir. So, um, yeah, back in 2009, I mean, that was like end of 2009, so we received uh, motor attacks before we go out. I mean, we were at Bob Wilson. There were, like, motor attacks uh, on our camp. There were, like, casualties. Not, I mean from the Canadian side, but the U.S. side. So that was a horrible day. And later on, after a few days, we went out. We went for a one-month operation 
in Helmand, which the name of the operation was uh, Operation Mushtaraki, means uh, Joint Operation. And I have a certificate from, from that. And we went out, we came under a firefight in the middle of nowhere, like we were in an open area. So we received fire from every compound. There were like holes into the walls, and they were shooting from the compounds. I mean, the Taliban were shooting at us, and we were like in an open area. So we were just looking for an obstacle, not to get shot, or just jump into a ditch. So finally, we survived. Nobody got shot. And we came under fire several times while we went out in Helmand province. So the operation was that Marines, I mean, American Marines take over Marja district. We were around the area. All forces, they came from all over Afghanistan. And, yeah, we faced horrible situations. We came under fireflies, not just in Helmand province, even in Kandahar province. We lost Afghan National Army. One of them stepped on an IED, lost his both legs, and died on the way while the medevac wanted to carry him in the hospital. So he died. And we lost more of these men, I mean, Afghan National Army, Canadian forces, Americans, interpreters, and wounded as well. So the guy whom you talked to, Muhammad, and you mentioned this, emailed me. He said a Canadian soldier's life during the fireflies. And he was wounded himself as well. A Canadian general, he gave him a hug and appreciated his great job. And he said he's going to take him to Canada. But somehow, Muhammad was sick. He had to go home because he was wounded. He spent 50 days after when he came back to Kandahar to see that general again. The general just changed. I mean, he just went back to Canada, and there was another guy, Kim. So Muhammad missed that process. He couldn't go to uh, Canada. And all those days passed. And now our situation is even worse than that. We're just looking with fingers crossed and waiting for help from Canada officials. It's not about financial issues, anything like that. It's about life or death. It's about necessity of us and our family. And thanks for your question, Joe. I mean, Roy, sorry. That's all right. You can call me Joe. He's my buddy. Your buddy, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I appreciate it. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. James, what is, what is a day that you remember? You went out with Canadian soldiers. What happened? Tell us what the day was like. Well, I just want to add, uh, yeah, the mention is that what Alex mentioned, I wasn't uh, part of uh, that operation as well. So I've been with, uh, with the Canadian forces in that operation as well. So, yeah, I remember, and I, 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 would, I just want to tell you another story. So uh, I was in a uh, Panjway district. There was a pop by by name uh, Pop uh, uh, Masumgar. So I'm pretty sure Alex and uh, team members who were there they they remember that pop. So yeah, we went out of uh, the base for for patrolling the area. So we patrolled all day and uh, we planned to 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 camp for the night uh, just like a little bit far away from the village. So early at the morning we had a rocket attack. And there was a group of kids who was wondering that what we are doing here, and they were just 
standing close to us. So we got lucky that rocket just like passed from us and it just blew up by the kids. So when we went there, there was a couple kids that were smashed. They were just, uh, they were dead. That was the gross. That was the, the worst day I ever seen. So, oh my God, yeah, yeah, there was a lot of days, but, uh, but this is one of those days. Those are the nightmare days. Um, let's get off that for a second. And what was your uh, what was your responsibility, Alex? How was your uh, when you went out with Canadian soldiers? What was your responsibility? What would you have to do? Well, uh, good question. I was uh, responsible in order to uh, exchange languages. You know, just to link up the ideas of both sides, like the Afghans and the Canadian forces. And I was not just a linguist. And uh, Me and James, we were uh, like cultural advisors as well. We were just uh, explaining the culture, everything. I mean, the behaviors, how to, uh, I mean, treat people here. And, of course, uh, that was not an easy job. That was dangerous, but we loved it because uh, we choose to serve. We choose to work, honestly. And um, we had much responsibilities than any other, uh, let's say, whoever is working in the office. Because simultaneously, we have to translate and interpret everything what our mentors saying to our Afghan National Army and vice versa. So, yeah, I think that that was like... um, not going to come back. I mean, those days. Mm-hmm. I did, mean, these did, days are not going to come back. James, did you ever have to uh, participate in the questioning of a prisoner? Uh, prisoners, yes, yes, of course. Yes, we had uh, we, we had a couple a uh, couple of guys where we arrested on a, on a patrolling days, like uh, when we were out, like we captured a couple of guys. Like, yeah, we 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 are interpreting those uh, those things as well. Mm-hmm. I can't get the. I, I mean, I can't, for, I can't, I can't get the words out of your out of my mind when you said about the rocket hit, hitting the kids. That's just, that's yeah, just that mind was, numbing. Uh, yeah, you know? that was one of my 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 worst days. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of worst days on on a front line we passed, but that was that was the really worst day. So I don't know if you you heard that. I also uh, lost my parents. Even Taliban killed my parents. I don't know you heard that. Uh, I'm pretty sure you you do because. Uh, Joe Warmington was uh, uh, following that through Toronto's on, on, uh, on the news. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a lot of worse days back in the front line, so I even don't want to think about those days anymore because <laughs> it makes me more sick. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can I can certainly appreciate that. Joe, if you're listening, I know Joe. I know Joe is listening. It's not a question of if he's listening. I know he's listening. Can you call us, Joe? It's eight hundred two six three. 2428 hold on guys uh 800 i know 800-263-2428 joe if you're listening i know you like i said i know you're listening give us a call 800-263-2428 i want to get joe warmington uh engaged in the conversation is that joe no okay uh talk to each other a little more uh you know you've been listening we've been asking separate questions so I'm sure some ideas have come to mind that you want to talk to each other about. Well, I was just wondering. Yes, of course, Roy. Right. I just want to ask. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, bro. 
Uh, I was just wondering if uh, if you can make it somewhere else safe that tell the Canadians can help you out with. Like if somebody can help you for now. Uh, as you know, I'm pretty new in this country. I cannot do anything. <laughs> I, I mean, like, I, I, I can't do any help because I'm, I'm still new in this country. And, yeah, for sure. I, I count myself as a Canadian. I, I, I'll do whatever I can. But uh, if you can go somewhere safe that at least uh, for a couple of days that they can uh, uh, figure out some help for you. That I appreciate will be it, nice. bro. I know, I know how much dangerous is there. And I passed those days, man. I know what you're doing there. So, yeah. I, I, I am the one who is exactly yeah. knows what, what, what you're doing there. Well, I tell you what people can do, and we've been saying this, and I was going to say it again in a minute, actually. One of the best things that they can do, because if you get in touch with Trudeau, it'll never get to Trudeau. It'll be intercepted by somebody in his office, and, and it'll just, it won't get to Trudeau. But what people can do is they can get a hold of their members of parliament, and they can be insistent that they want to talk to their MP, not get some email or a phone call from an assistant saying, we're aware and we're doing what we can. No, you want to talk to your member of parliament, push them, tell them if they expect you to vote for them, or your friends to vote for them, that they should return the phone calls because it's something important that you want to talk to them about. And then push them, make make the demand. Don't ask. Don't ask. Tell. Tell them to uh, tell them to get on it and tell them to get back to you. And there's no reason the Progressive or the Conservative Party of Canada, there's no reason that they cannot push in Parliament. They should. Andrew Scheer should. Trudeau is another matter. But Mr. Scheer should get into it and rapidly. I know, I know, I know. I got it. I can see. Um, okay, so get, contact your MP. And what you could also do is you can contact the opposition, um, you know, the people who are running for the other parties who are going to want votes next fall. Get a hold of them through their party offices. You can find them really quickly online. Just Google it. And uh, you can get give them some ammunition to move forward with. But your MP should be your first choice. Get forward, get at them, get in touch with the Legion because they uh, they have they have clout. There are veterans groups. The veterans the veterans groups in this country need to stand up and push hard for these interpreters. You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from two to five on nine hundred CHML. Back with Alex. We're back with James, and we're back with Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun. Joe, we all owe you. We're we're just following your lead on this. Well, I just want to say that I appreciate what you're doing now, Roy. I mean, I have to admit that uh, I had run into a wall on this story, and, you know, I know I feel really bad for Alex and for all the other interpreters. Uh, the, the, you know, they would like to see me write on this every day, every week, and, it's, of course, that's hard to do, especially when you keep running into it. I started thinking that maybe I was part of the problem and that the more I wrote on it, the more it upset Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, and and that kind of thing. But now I think that um, this has been revitalized by yourself. One thing I want to put out there, and and I, I think this is a good, obviously the best forum possible to do it. If some veterans want to put together a rally for Parliament Hill this spring, sooner the better. Um, I'll help organize it. I'll help promote it. Uh, I think I can get three, you know soon to be Premier uh, Doug Ford to help us because he's been very supportive of my efforts over the 
to pass on this. And we can, uh, you know, we can really take this to Prime Minister Trudeau, who I know at the heart of it, I just need to get to him and to talk to him and to explain it to him. You know, the ear of the people that have his ear are not interested in people like the gentleman you have, you know, the fine gentleman you have on today. They are more interested in the people that they were fighting against, the people that were the terrorists and, and that kind of thing. That's where their interest is. We need to sort of switch them and say, look, the good guys were these guys. And uh, the other thing is, I uh, just want to say one more thing, is that um, it's a real honor to be on with both Alex and James. And I don't know Alex, but I certainly know James. And I just hope that, I don't know if you can hear me, James, but I hope you're doing well. Thank you very much, Joel. Nice to hear from you. I really, uh, you know, I think back to when we fought uh, to get James here, Roy, and you were helpful at the time. And uh, the big, the big help there for us was John McCallum, who is now the ambassador to China. And again, I don't know how to get a hold of him, but if there are people that do, we could use his help again. He has some uh, sway. He's certainly a political heavyweight, someone we all respect. Um, we just got to get to the prime minister to explain to him, you know, that we have to do this. And look, we're, we're talking now about going to Africa with our troops, and they've had 165 people killed in Africa. It's not quite the number that we experienced, unfortunately, in Afghanistan, but I'm talking about uh, United Nations troops there. Yeah. And so we're going to, you know, run into casualties perhaps. And we're asking interpreters to help our people to stay out of that. When I was in Afghanistan, Roy, I've told you before, uh, it was the interpreters that kept us out of being killed. They were always saying, don't go down this street, don't go down that street, just on hunches or looks on faces, things like that. You know, they were in the in the vehicles looking out on the street and they, they could read the mood, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're really fully appreciate it. You know, that's such a good point, right? Do you, because you're a local, because you, you understand the just the just the atmosphere, just the motion of the place tells you what's going on. By the way, Joe, I'm with you 100% on, uh, on getting this done, and I'll also get in touch with veterans groups, and let's see if we can get, let's see if we can get this well, taken care of. And if Justin Trudeau wants to take credit for it all, you know, I'm more than happy to, I'm sure you are as well, to say fine. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister. Well, of course. I mean, it's his decision, and he's the only one that can do it. And the people around him have convinced him that the people that try to attack us and our people, you know, are the good people. They need to be kind of rehabilitated, and maybe we'll convince them to like us and these kinds of things. And and you know what? I don't agree with any of that. I would put all those people in prison. I would never let them in the country, but I'm not in charge. But this, you know, we have a leniency towards those people that would kill us. And we pay them, you know, $10 million and things like that. Let's have a little bit of uh, compassion for the people that served our troops. And, you know, we lost a lot over there. A lot of them came home. And every one of them that I speak to, you know, they they talk about the interpreters. When I was there, the interpreter that I worked with was a guy named Ahmed. And uh, he never did get uh, to the country. We tried to get him here. We couldn't. Um, But, uh, you know, he... He had his house burned down and, like, his whole face and hands and feet, everything were all burned. And his family is in the, in the same case with the James Cam. His parents were murdered. So this is real. And you know what? I mean, um, I feel like a real a fresh uh, adrenaline coming into my bones, thanks to you, Roy, um, because I really want to do this. I want to have a rally. But I, 
I, I really need help organizing it. I need someone else to, I, you know, a reporter is not supposed to organize these things. I, I, I'm supposed to support them and cover them and write about them and lobby and all those kinds of things. So if I could get a veterans group or someone to help, like we did with the rally back in 2006, Justin Vandette and Louise Gray and myself, we had a rally for the troops when, you know, it was really starting to turn bad and the NDP were talking about, you know, that we were the bad guys and that that's why we had the rally. And I'd like to do it again. I want to do it in Ottawa and I want to do it when Parliament's sitting. Mm-hmm. And I want to, you know, I think we have to do that. And this is, you know, I'm committed to it right here, right on Roy Green's show. I just need one phone call, one email from someone, maybe someone in Ottawa that can help uh, put it together and I'll give all my support and I'll, I'll try to get everybody that I know to support it. Last time I invited every celebrity I know and only one showed up and his name was Gordon Lightfoot. I think we'll get more this time. I know we'll get Don Cherry there because James will tell you that the very first Canadian outside of myself that he spoke to was, was Don Cherry. Always know? Don. And that's pretty, Always that's Don. pretty good. Well, I'll get involved with you too, Joe. And, uh, you know, we've got this national reach with the show, and I know that people across the country feel extremely strongly. I see it in the emails. We see it on Twitter. It's just there. The, the emotion is there, the solid support. They're just saying thank you and welcome to our family. Alex, uh, how dangerous is life for you? Do you wake up every day wondering, is this the day they are going to find me? Excuse me, I uh, beg your pardon, please. Uh, uh, no, do, uh, how, how, how dangerous is life for you in Afghanistan? Life is, I mean, I'm not living. I just try to stay alive, at least, you know. I'm just alive. Living means when people, they have jobs to do, they have responsibilities. The only responsibility I have is just take care of my family, they go to for the door during the night time and wait a couple of hours during the night time and just don't go anywhere, like not hanging out anywhere. I mean, I don't care, I mean, about I have a job or not, but uh, I'm caring about my family, about my safety. I mean, life is horrible. I mean, I'm living in a bad situation. I don't have tranquility at all. And I expect to gain my tranquility back from Canada officials. I mean... Before yeah. coming to become as an interpreter, I had tranquility. I had everything. I, had, I mean, although our country was uh, dangerous, full of bad guys, I mean, Taliban, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And after when I joined as a linguist, I loved my job. I loved my services. I loved my I mean, guys. Canadians, I guys. I really, you know, I really hate. I, work with. I really hate to do this, but we're out of time. And if I don't stop the satellite, I'll stop us. Alex, we're going to work on it. James, we're yeah. going to work on it. Joe is always the first with the ideas. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. We've got it done. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.